church? There we go. All right. You guys can hear me now. I don't have to yell. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans. Um, we're going to um, continue on our series through, through the book of Romans this morning in chapter 12, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, <clears throat> it's good to see all of you. Apparently, um, I think we're live streaming the service, so like you guys are kind of our live streaming audience, and you know, hey, everybody out there. Um, I... Uh, I'm going to read this passage. We're going to be looking at chapter 12 of Romans, verses 9 um, and on, basically, to the end of the passage and um, and the chapter. And then um, I'll put it up on the screen. You can look at it in your Bible if you want, and then we'll kind of go back and talk about it a little bit. Um, This is Romans 12, verses 9. It's actually going to be, let me see, through 18, yeah, 12, 9 through 18. says this. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thoughts to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we've been talking about what it means to live the Christian life. Uh, Basically, we've heard the gospel through the first 11 chapters of Romans, and now Paul tells us how to live out the gospel. And we've talked about our mind being transformed. We've talked about that giving us the ability to see ourselves different, the gifts that we have, understand what it means to be a part of a church, and and that this is an important place for us to be. And Paul continues on now by talking about the most important thing that we can do towards one another, the most important way that we can act, which is to be people who love, who love other people before we worry about doing a single other thing. And Paul talks about that by talking about something called genuine or sincere love here at the beginning of this passage. We're going to look at the first part of it this morning. The second part of it, Brandon's going to look at next week uh, as it talks about how to love those outside the church. And then kind of there's some verses in the middle that we'll see. They kind of have to do with both. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about those. I don't know if you remember this ever happening to you, but I certainly do where um, when I was younger, uh, I would go through these phases where all I wanted was a specific kind of toy. and, um, And it was very easy to shop for me. Just get me something of that, right? Uh, This was even like this is actually before Legos were even a big deal. Like, they hadn't made their resurgence yet. So, like, nowadays, it's something like that, right? But it, this was like Ninja Turtle days, okay? So there would be years where it was very easy to shop for Eddie. That was my name back then. You just buy him Ninja Turtle stuff, right? But what happens, inevitably, for all kids, and we've all experienced this on other things in life as well, is some very well-meaning people who may not fully understand what it is that you want will get you something that is very close to what you want, but not actually what it is that you want. There's an entire industry built around this, affordable alternatives to things that we want 
that aren't quite what we want, but close enough as to confuse our relatives. And uh, they're basically knockoffs. Like this right here is, uh, is a real thing. It's called a new style ninja tortoise, okay? Now, if I received this, which I did, if I received this, uh, I would be very disappointed. Um, I wasn't at the point in my life yet where I thought iron, ironic, weird things were cool. I just, would have th I just thought, this is not a Ninja Turtle, that's what I want. But to a grandparent or somebody who only knows so much about it, it's like, that seems to make sense to me. In fact, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle doesn't make any sense to me. That sounds like a knockoff, they'd probably be saying, so I have no idea where to go, right? But there's so many of these things, of so many different things. This is a Star Knight, this is a real thing. Somebody made this and sold it, and I'm pretty sure that's Darth Vader, and that's not a, a police officer is riding on a motorcycle giving people tickets, but doesn't matter. You could buy that for much cheaper and uh, kill two birds with one stone. This is a van that looks suspiciously a lot like the van from the A-Team, and it also looks suspiciously a lot like Mr. T, uh, and it never did say that on any of these, and so I think you would look at it and go, well, uh, my, you know, whatever relative loves the A-Team, and so this is a Mr. T A-Team van, which it definitely is not, and it probably only costs you like 50 cents too. Uh, you can get Adventure Man instead of Rambo. Um, you can get Spider Man instead of Spider Man. Um, you know, what's the difference, right? Doesn't look like a spider anyway. I don't know why kids like these things, right? Um, but there is an entire industry out there of cheap knockoff alternatives to the things that we actually want, right? You can get sunglasses that are knockoffs. You can get valuable things for discount prices if you're willing to buy the knockoff thing. And this has become a huge problem now that we buy everything we buy on Amazon because Amazon has that. Okay. There's a real problem with the fact that we buy everything we buy on Amazon because they have no way of really eliminating all the cheap knockoffs that you go shopping for and you accidentally get. In fact, you may have had this happen where you're looking for something and you think you're buying the real thing and then you pick a different size and then it changes to a third-party seller out of Japan and the next thing you know, you're getting something that costs a fraction of the price and you're so proud of yourself and it's not the real thing. One of the clearest examples of this that has happened again and again and again is this thing called the of glove. This is like a real problem with the of glove. Has anybody here ever owned an of glove? I, yes, okay, good. Really two in this service. We only had one in the last service. Um, oh, we have, okay. So the of glove is uh, exactly what it looks like. It's an oven glove. It's like a potholder thing. And the great thing about it is you can wash it because, you know, we're always spilling stuff all over our potholders and our mitts we use to get things out of the oven. And, uh, and it doesn't let you burn your hand. Well, the problem is that you can buy a cheap alternative to the of glove, get it in the mail, be very proud of yourself for saving money, and not realize until the moment comes to pick something scalding hot out of your oven and you then burn your hand because it's a cheap alternative and people have serious problems, right? Spill it all over the place, right? This is like a real problem that people have, so much so that there are these things posted on Amazon for how to tell the real one versus the fake one because they're so prevalent. We live in a society where there are lots and lots of fake knockoffs to the real genuine articles of things, almost everything that there is. Paul is talking about this, in a sense, when he talks about how we're supposed to love each other. Because what he says at the beginning of this passage is this. He says, let love be genuine. Now, if you were to interpret this in the Greek and not make it so easy to understand, like they have in our modern translations, it actually just says genuine love. That's it. They, there's no verb. They add that to make it make a little bit more sense. But what Paul's basically done in this passage is he's written out like a huge list of things that are what it looks like when there is this thing called genuine love. 
when you love people outside the church, people inside the church, and everything in between. But he's not even actually telling us to love each other. Why? Because we know we're supposed to love each other, right? Like, obviously, we should be loving each other. People in the world don't say, oh, I don't love people, I don't love other people. They just say, I have a way of loving people, right? But everyone thinks that they're actually trying to love people um, in their own way that they do that. Paul starts this whole passage by simply saying this, love will be genuine that is shown by us as believers because of this change that's happened with us. So if the gospel has changed your thinking, it has changed your way of viewing yourself, it's changed your understanding of your gifts, then it will also change your ability to love people and it will give you the ability to love people for real in a world that is overflowing with imitations of genuine love. This is what we experience most of the time in life, is not genuine love, but imitations of genuine love. It makes us cynical, makes us frustrated when it comes to caring for people and being cared for, and it makes us wonder if we can ever really do this thing called loving each other. Paul says the first thing that we have to do with other people is love them. That's the first thing. That is our number one priority. Jesus himself said it. They'll know that you're my followers and my disciples by the way that you love one another. Uh, The the greatest commandment is to love God and, and love others, right? Love is key. But our ability to love is greater with the gospel changing us in our lives. There's a couple of things about this genuine love that Paul says here in these first few verses that tell us how it kind of works. And then what we're going to look at is what it specifically looks like when it's played out in the church body, which is kind of what he does. He's just listing out what people do who really genuinely love each other in the church body. The first thing about it is that it's real, uh, and it's surrounded by alternatives, fakes, in, uh, cheap knockoff bootleg things that you get on Amazon from third-party sellers. That's what we, the world is full of. This is one that is real. The second thing he says about it is in the next verse where he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So genuine love is a love that is rooted in the idea of there being good and there being bad, there being right and there being evil or wrong. In fact, what's really incredible about this verse is that what Paul is saying when he describes genuine love is that it involves hate. He says that there is something about really being able to love in a real way that will also cause us to hate that which is evil and bad. Why? Because evil and sinful and bad things, the result of the fallenness of what we experience in this world, is what causes all the pain and suffering. If we love people, if we love God, then we will hate the things that hurt people. We will hate the things that are ultimately against God's way. And so he says this thing isn't just that it's genuine, it's also rooted in something that is more objective than how I'm making you feel in this relationship I have with you and how you're making me feel. That's the way we understand love to work, right? Love is you make me feel good. If you love me, you'll make me feel good. If I love you, I'll make you feel good, right? You've all been in that situation where you have a friend And there's something that you think you probably should talk to them about, maybe in their life. Or maybe it's just the fact that, like, their life's a mess, and you can kind of tell maybe why, but you know they maybe don't want to hear it, or they're maybe not ready to hear it, or you're like, I don't really know that I want to be the person to say something like that anyway. But it's a mess, right? You then find yourself in this dilemma, and it's a really hard situation to be in, where you go, do I tell them the truth 
and risk them not being my friend anymore? Do I tell them the truth and risk them walking away going, I can't believe you would say that to me, that you would think that? And much of the, or do we not tell them, keep the friendship, which is what we do most of the time, and then, you know, at least we'll still be friends. I'll always have an opportunity to share, you know, that with them or, or care about them in that way before. Um, the people who really care about us care about the things that are going on in our lives. They don't just care about how we feel about them, right? I think the truth is most of us are very uncomfortable and very afraid of doing anything that causes the people that we care about to not care back, for that relationship to not continue going and to be strong. I mean, I have been amazed at how hard it is for me with friends as a person who's constantly talking to people about what God wants and doesn't want to do that thing in its most simplest way. In fact, what happens is the closer I am with someone, the more I love and care about them and want them to be a part of my life, the harder it is to talk about or care about the things that might be causing harm. But what I want is for people to love me enough to care about the things that are happening in my life, to care about whether the truth of God and good things are being evident or not. Cheap love is indifferent to what's going on in people's lives. Imitation love says, I'm just here to listen. I'm here to do whatever makes you happy and whatever makes you feel good, and I want you to do the same thing for me. We cannot truly, genuinely love without also understanding what evil is and having a distaste for that thing, hating ultimately that thing. Genuine love is rooted in what God says is good and what God says isn't good. And that is important. And we gain that with a renewed mind, with a new way of thinking. The next thing he says after this is he goes on and says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. So what he's saying here is the kind of the motivation behind our ability to do this thing. So our love that is genuine, the nature of it is such that we're not only going to love people because they're such great people, and we're not only going to experience love in communities that are only such great communities, which is kind of how we think it works as well, right? That's how imitation love works. Imitation love is like, if I like you enough and you like me enough, then we can maybe have love, right? If not, not going to happen, right? Uh, imitation love says, if a community is good enough, I can love them. If a community is good enough... I can receive love from them, maybe. But what Paul's saying here, he's reminding them, is that the power, the thing that makes it possible, is not where we're all at. It is the Spirit of God, because this thing comes out of a relationship with God. It doesn't come out of a relationship with people. So God gives me the ability to love others the more that I love Him, the more that I focus on Him, the more that I grow in an intimate relationship with Him, I grow in my ability to share his love and express his love with other people. These are the things that tell us kind of the nature of how this genuine love works. He says, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirits. We are ultimately loving others because it's how we serve the Lord, not because of what we gain from others or what they gain from us alone. Only the Spirit of God is going to make this possible us in our lives. So faith, when it is lived out, is going to be expressed in love. Our faith is going to be expressed in love to God and to community. And in these first verses, it's focusing first on the community within the church itself, the church family, the people that are together in relationship. This is where Paul's going to start. 
he's going to begin with this, that we are to love one another with brotherly affection. So there's, there's four things I'm going to say about the way this love looks, what it looks like for us to do it. The first is this. It's going to look like a family loving one another, not like friends loving one another. He tells us, love one another with brotherly affection, with the kind of affection you have for a sibling. You can't get out of a family, unfortunately, maybe for some, fortunately for others, you know. Um, what that tells us is that real love is ultimately commitment. And the alternative to it, this fake love, is when we could just go it alone. We always have the choice. We have the freedom to just walk away, to walk away from the community of God, the people of God. And yet, it begins with a brotherly relationship, a brother and sister relationship with the people in the church. I won't be able to live out the Christian life in isolation from other people. I won't. I won't be able to do it, just me and God. There's going to need to be community of people involved. And it also won't just be my immediate family, even though I think that's something we're a lot more comfortable with than the community of the church a lot of the time. You know, for hundreds and even thousands of years, there was no way that people could grow in a relationship with God without the church because people couldn't read. And so, you know, you had to go to church to hear about God. That was the only place that you got access to it. Once, you know, the printing press and modern inter translations and languages and all that stuff happened, then people were still pretty darn illiterate. And then as people get more literate and there begin to be more ways to communicate God's word and things like that, we have what we have now, where there's a lot of ways that people feel that they can grow in a relationship with God that doesn't involve a community. It makes it easier to do that thing. But for the vast majority of time, since the early church until now, there hasn't been a way to grow in God without being a part of the family of God, the family that he brings us into. That's hugely important. Back then, people didn't have podcasts. People didn't have Bibles that they could read in their own language or even that they could read if they had them. People didn't have worship music. They didn't have gather music to listen to during their quiet times. There weren't Christian books to read. You didn't have left-behind books that you could read that made it maybe a little bit easier to kind of wrap your mind around this stuff. You don't have inspirational reels that pop up on Instagram, and you're like, that made me feel so much better today. And it was the perfect length of time, and now I feel like I'm closer to God. Now I'm going to put my phone away and go on with my life, right? Didn't even need to be around a group of people in order to gain that. That's great, right? There wasn't any of that stuff. You had to come to the community of God in order to actually interact, it felt, much of the time with God. So I'm not going to be able to live this Christian life or pursue God without doing that in community. That's how we're meant to be together. Real love is committed. The church was a family. Here's the thing that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. It was the primary family of believers. Jesus said it his own way. He said, I'm here to turn basically family members against one another because your faith, if it isn't shared by someone else in your extended family, you'll experience division from that person. You'll feel separated from that person because you won't share the same mind, the one that's transformed as someone who's been changed by the gospel. When Paul writes these epistles that we read, that he's writing these letters to the church, there's 13. It doesn't take up a ton of the, of the, the real estate of the Bible, but if you look at just those pages, those 13 epistles, he uses the word um, 
the, the root word adelph, which is like brotherly or like this word that we have here, you know, this brotherly love. He uses that root word or some form of that word 139 times in these 13 epistles. He uses pater, which is like the root for father, like uh, 63 times in these epistles. He uses inheritance 19 times, sons 17 times. He uses child 39 times. And you go, yeah, Paul really cares about our families, right? He's helping us understand how to be better in our families. That's why he's always talking about brothers and sisters and fathers and inheritance and all these different things. And yet, a lot of times you find that if you're like, where is that book of the Bible on how to have a good marriage? Where is that book of the Bible on how to be a good parent? Where is that book of the Bible on good, wholesome Christian dating, right? You're like, I don't quite know where it is, but I'm sure it's there somewhere. Paul doesn't really talk a ton about it. What he's constantly talking about is like this church family thing. What's that all about? Because when a person became a believer, they were saved into this group of people called the church. Uh, when the early church begins, when Peter's preaching to people you know, in, in Jerusalem at the beginning, you know, Pentecost and all that stuff, thousands of people coming to faith, they ask him, they say, what must we do to be saved? And he walks them through this process in his sermon to them where he basically says, repent of your sins, and then he says, leave this crooked and depraved generation. You're, you're leaving the world that you were a part of before, the community you were a part of before that was fallen, and then be baptized and join, he says, them, which basically it says thousands of people joined them that day, which is the church. <coughs> so what he's saying is that when a person becomes a Christian, they become a part of a new family, and that family is the primary community and group of people that shapes their faith from that point on. That's a hard thing for us to wrap our mind around. I think especially in churches that are often filled with families, filled with married couples, filled with people with kids, because we like the idea a lot more that like you, uh, the Bible's telling us that we start with our immediate families. That's the most important group that we're going to be discipling, discipled in, and all those different things. I even, as I look at this and I see the language that Paul uses again and again, I'm convicted by the number of times that I think I've elevated like immediate family and said, that's the way that God grows us. That is the way that God, like, like that's the group that God uses the most. And so we have to give the best of everything that we have to these people in our lives, which often is more a reflection of our culture, which says, whatever I've invested myself in needs to be kind of God for me. And if that's my family, that needs to be it, right? I'm not saying that God doesn't care about our families. We, scripture tells us that he does. There's lots that points to that. But what's crazy is that there is a lot more in Scripture that talks about how we're a part of this group of people, the church, and that's the group of people that we're going to be in community and be growing with. He says we're supposed to love each other like brothers and sisters because we have a father, a shared inheritance, right? A lot of times we interact with each other like people living in a boarding house, like, like people who like all have their own room and their own place, and one guy owns it, and we just have to make sure that we're right with that person, but it doesn't really matter about the other people because mostly we have a relationship with him. With the, in, with the advent of the printing press and our ability to access spiritual content and stuff on our own without the need of a church, that has also come at a time in an individualistic society where this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus has been way magnified to the point that, like, we think mostly only of that. Like, that's what God cares about. 
is me and him with no one else involved, right? That's the most important thing to God. And yet, why does Paul bring us back again and again and again to the church and to others? Because the church is the family, and we love each other like this. It's much more convenient for us to love people until it's inconvenient. Yeah, that makes sense. To love people until it's inconvenient, and then to go it alone again. And by alone, I don't just mean only me. I mean, I will love a community, I'll love a group of people when it works at a time in my life, and then there will be a point when I probably won't want to anymore, and I'll want to maybe move on, or I'll be done, or I'll be at a new stage, or ready, or something like that. Maybe I don't feel like I need community like I did before. Real love, says Paul, is brotherly affection towards one another, which is like what we've experienced in our biological families. He goes on and he says, to outdo one another in showing honor. So the next thing that we see about this love is this. Real love is actually lifting other people up instead of lifting myself up. This was an honor-shame culture. The thing that you were most obsessed with, especially if you had any connection to the, the Jewish faith that Christianity came out of, was the idea that you were living an honorable life. And so, like, that was the most important thing. As far as, as, far as God was concerned, in your mind, it mattered how honorable you were. That mattered a lot to your family. That mattered a lot to your friends and things like that. So you could help other people. You could do things for other people, sure, but never if it came at the cost of you being honored and you being honorable because I got to answer to God at some point. He's going to expect me to be in the best shape that I can be in spiritually. Outdo one another in showing honor, says Paul. If you know anything about siblings, you know the competition kind of comes with that whole deal. There's a lot of competing for parents' affection, for resources, to be the best at something. Even if you uh, just go about your own lives, if you don't think that you're sibling and you compete, that probably means you're the more successful one and you don't think it matters at all. And they're like, you got to be kidding me. You got another bigger house or you got a better promotion or you did something different, right? Um, I see it with my own kids. We know what that feels like. We, it's in our nature to compete with one another. And Paul doesn't deny that. He actually plays to it and he says, if you're going to compete with each other, if you're going to go after each other, then compete in this. Say, I'm more concerned with you being honored than with me being honored. That's a crazy way of loving people. That's a very genuine way of loving people. And the only way that we can do that is because the gospel makes it possible that I don't have to be the most honorable person in this situation. I can love you when it costs me, when it's difficult for me. He goes on and he says, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer. So what he's saying here, he's describing what it is to be in difficult circumstances and trials and situations with people in the community of faith. And that when we do that, we're going to have a choice. The choice when things are difficult, especially for other people, especially for the community itself, is to just try as hard as we can to get back to safe ground, right? To get back to higher ground, to get back to a place where we know that the craziness and the difficulty and the suffering is going to go away. If nothing else, I'm just going to get to some more happy people whose lives aren't maybe struggling as much because that's just kind of a bummer for me and it's kind of a drag. 
But what he says for us to do is to rejoice with one another in a hope for something that's to come, to be patient in tribulation with each other, especially the tribulation our brothers and sisters are going through, and to be constant in prayer. Real love is patient. And for us, that's very difficult because the cheap Amazon knockoff says you love until you're ready to move on. You love until you're ready for new things, for different things. He gives us examples of very specific ways that we do that, and it kind of goes to the next, the next point, sort of the last thing that we know about this kind of love, and it's this. He says we're supposed to contribute to the saints. We're supposed to seek to show hospitality. These are really general things. One has to do with people who are in the church all the time. The saints are like the people you go to church with and you know them pretty well. Hospitality is a word that's only used for people that are outside your immediate circle of friends. So you show hospitality to a visitor. You show hospitality to a relatively new person. You don't show hospitality to your family and your friends because they're your family and friends. They don't need hospitality. You treat them as friends and as family. Hospitality is the act of treating a stranger as if they were friend or family. So what he's saying here is it needs to be very tangible the way that you live this out. It's going to be very simple. There will be needs for the church, actual physical things that people need. Contribute to those needs. And there will be people who come in from the outside. Show them hospitality. Be warm and inviting and compassionate towards them and treat them as they're part of the family, even though people don't typically do that because that's a crazy kind of love to have for each other. There is like so much that could be said for the needs that the church had at the time Paul's writing this. He's, uh, when the church itself begins in Jerusalem, many know that thousands of people come to faith. They were just there for like holy days. So they come to faith and they're like, I don't want to go back home. I want to stay here. This is where this new thing called the church is. And so I want to be a part of it. So no more job, no more back home. I'm going to stay here. And all the people that lived in Jerusalem were like, I thought it was great to live in Jerusalem. And now it's like the worst because there's all these people here. They don't have jobs. They don't have places to live. They got to live with me. They got to sleep in my house. They need help like feeding their family and all these different things. And the birth of the church was this situation where people had to basically pitch in to care for each other because there were physical needs that the church had in order for them to, to grow and to, to learn and to, and to develop a community together. There were all, there's, like, there's like incredible stories throughout the history of the church. Some that happened in the first century where, for example, um, to be like in the Roman, in the Roman Empire, for example, um, like theater and plays and acting were actually like pretty immoral environments and situations. I'm not saying that's, you know, how movies and theaters are now, but that's how they were then. And so, like, what Christians would do is they basically said, like, don't go to the theater. If you go to the theater, you're going to be participating in some really messed up stuff, so don't go. Well, there was a point in the history of the early church where a very famous actor converted to Christianity. And, you know, nowadays, if, like, Brad Pitt converts to Christianity, we'd, like, be, go bananas over that, right? Like, oh, somebody popular became a Christian. Yes, this is it. This is amazing. They're going to speak at all the big churches. It's going to be awesome. See, guys, we were right. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool, right? Back when that happened, it was not a good thing when a famous actor converted to Christianity because they were a person who represented this, like, messed up, debaucherous world. And so what happened in that instance was the actor quit their job in, 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 the, in plays and in that community, and they began to start um, doing other things. And in order for them to do that, they had to basically like, be supported by the church. People were constantly coming to faith and having to walk away from things in life that were pretty big 
And the only way that that could be possible was for the church to support the needs of the brothers and for people to then show hospitality to those that came in from the outside. You see what this looks like tangibly because real love itself is more than just doing that in word. It's doing that in actual, in actual physical actions. You see, people came in and they were like, I had to walk away from my job for this. I don't have anywhere to live. And you can't be like, blessings to you. God loves you. See you next week, right? Like, there were tangible physical things that had to happen. The, the kind of the last thing we see about this genuine love is that it is a love that is manifested in actions. It requires us to act. It requires us to be physically present with people, to be, live sacrificially with people, when instead it would be so much easier to just use words. I love words. I love words. If you know me, you know how much I love words, and I wish that I could solve every problem and do everything with words. I've tried. I try a lot. But you just can't do it. Ever since the first opportunity that people had to write their words down and like send them on like a, on like with a messenger to somewhere else, that gave us the ability to send our words to people without physically being present with them. And as technology has developed, we've been given better and easier ways to be able to express our words to people and our love to people through words, which is great, it's wonderful, without being physically present and without there being action behind it. What Paul's saying is that within the context of your immediate church family, like, your love will be genuine in that it will go beyond words. And much of the cheap imposter loves that we experience in this world and in life are mere words. It's sentiment. It is things that we hope and wish for one another, but don't ultimately, there's no cost to us, and we ultimately have to do something for it. He goes on and he says this, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. He's saying that when people are happy, be happy with them. When people are mourning, sit with them and weep. These are tangible, physical things that we do when people are in our lives and we love them. And we can't do it with everybody, and you don't want people to do it with everybody. I mean, if you've lost someone and you're in mourning, you do not want everybody sitting with you and weeping all at once, right? You're like, nope, no thanks, I can't handle it all. We even celebrate that way. Uh, I'm throwing a birthday party, I want to have a good time, I want you to rejoice with me, but I'm definitely not inviting every person I know and every single person at the church. I just can't do that. So you can rejoice with me, maybe not by being there, and then some people will by being there. So we know that this doesn't mean that we have to actually physically be doing things for every single person all the time in the church. But, but genuine love is, requires us, compels us to act for each other, act on behalf of one another. I think that there are very clear differences between this genuine love and this imitation love that exists, the one that we experience in the world around us constantly. And I don't know about you, but when I look at this, while it can be encouraging, uh, it can often be overwhelming and feel like something that we're not capable of. I look at it and I go, oh, great. Yeah, that sounds totally easy, right? I can totally do that. I can totally love people that way, and that would be just such a great and non-totally exhausting way of living my life. The beauty of what we see here, the beauty of what Paul is communicating is the nature of this love. 
See, the only way that we know how to love people in a real way is because we ourselves have first been loved in a real way. It's because uh, we know the truth that God loved us first, that God uh, loved us through his son who also loved us. And in this costly way of caring for us, gave a way for us to be in a relationship with him. And if we've experienced that grace, then the good news is we don't need anything from anybody else moving forward. Here's what I mean by that. The single biggest thing that makes other loves incomplete is they're transactional, whether we admit them or not. I will love you because I think you will love me in return. That's why I choose to love the people I do. That's why I don't feel like I can love everyone. I will, uh, I will love you because I think that I should to follow some rules, to earn some status with God, but then ultimately I'm not going to be able to do it in the long run, and I'm going to burn out, and I'm going to probably get cynical and discouraged by what it creates. And so in the end, I thought I could get something out of it. I thought I could get a better uh, view of myself. I thought people would respect me more. I thought I'd be more moral. I thought I'd be more respectable, more honorable. But it's just too much work, and I just can't do it. You see, incomplete loves say, I love in order to get something back from someone or something. But the beauty of the gospel is it tells us that God has given us everything that we need which gives us the ability to do what no one else can do. I can love you, and you don't have to love me back. I can give to you, and you don't have to give back to me. I can invest myself in a community of people, and they can fail me and let me down and not be as loving as I think they should be. We could experience things like disunity. We could experience all kinds of issues with each other, just like any other kind of family. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that I can't keep on loving. We view love as a commodity that we run out of. I only have so much love that I can give people. I can't give everybody all the love that they need. Or we think maybe if I'm in a really good place, then I'll be filled up with love enough, and then I can love other people. But I just can't unless I'm in a really good place all the time. The gospel tells us the good news of it. The good news that Paul reminds us of is the reason that we can love this way is not because we're stronger or more capable. It's because we don't need things from those that we're loving. We don't even need something from the community that we're loving. We do it as an expression of the gospel in our lives. What that means is that the more I understand the gospel, the more that I reflect on how much God has done for me and how much Jesus has done for me, the more grateful that I can feel about that, the more I can love others. The less cynical I will become when people don't love me in the way that I want to in return. And the more genuine that love can be. I, don't, I can't think of a better way to, to end this time than to be able to take communion together because Jesus' sacrifice is the reason that we can love one another at all. It's the reason that we can experience any kind of love that there is. Understanding just how much we depend on the work he did on the cross also makes it possible for us to have grace with others that don't appreciate and understand that yet. That we, I don't expect the world to love me the way that someone who understands Christ will love me. I don't hold them to that standard, and I don't expect that of them. And I can love people graciously. So let's continue to worship, and we're going to continue to take communion. We're going to take communion together for a little while. If you're at home, I'd encourage you to take communion there. Um, and um, let's just reflect back on the source of this love that we have. Would you guys pray with me?
Father, 